Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. Our guest today is Marcia Shore, an American historian and associate professor at Yale University, where she teaches modern European intellectual history. I spoke to Marcia about the importance of Central and Eastern Europe for the world's culture, the problem of evil, the origins of Russian cruelty, and about contemporary Ukrainian writing. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. Support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Marcia Shore, thank you so much for joining this podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Volodya. So this is the second time we talk within Explaining Ukraine podcast, and I'm I'm, I'm so grateful that you, you find your time. Uh, today we de- uh, we decided to talk about intellectual culture, about philosophy, especially in Eastern Europe, and I'm very, very much interested in how you see it, uh, how you see it in the United States, and why, for example, this interest of, of people like you, um, of people like... Uh, Uh, Timothy Snyder, of people like Timothy Garten Ash, whom I've seen in Kiev a few a few weeks ago as well. Why is this interest to Eastern European or Central European intellectual history and how it fits the Western, so-called the Western canon, how probably it enriches it and maybe changes the way how the Western intellectuals look at things? <clears throat> well, I don't know that it's a mass phenomenon, you know, myself and Tim and our Slavicist friends, and it's my whole world. So it seems to me to be a lot of people, but I suspect in demographic terms, it's actually a, quite a small number of people in the United States. And I can say for myself, I mean, it was very much a, a generational history. I was 17 years old in 1989, and I was very caught up in the romance of that moment. Um, I was I was caught up in the language. I mean, I was just coming into political maturity at the time. I was very interested. Growing up in the 1980s, which was the Reagan era, uh, it was the last era of the Cold War. There was a lot of talk about the evil empire, not a lot of very sophisticated talk. The magic and the idealism of the 1960s, which had been my parents' generation, although they didn't participate, it was over. You know, I missed the anti-war movement, the movement against the war in Vietnam. I missed the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. I missed the free love. I missed everything. So I was feeling as I came of age as a teenager extremely deprived. Um, when I was 17, Abby Hoffman committed suicide. Um, I don't know that your your listeners will remember Abby Hoffman. This could be a somewhat obscure American reference, but he was one of the great anti-war and civil rights activists um, of the 60s and 70s. And his suicide felt like, you know, the end of any kind of revolutionary belief or idealism or sense that there was going to be a radically better world. I went to his memorial service and it was spring or summer of 1989. 
And William Kunstler, who had been one of the attorneys who defended Abby Hoffman and the others of the so-called Chicago Seven um, in the uh, famous show trial in 1968, he was there. He was speaking. Um, Bobby Seale, who was another one of the defendants, a Black Panther activist, was speaking. But there was a sense that their moment had passed, that nobody really believed anymore. There were Vietnam veterans on motorcycles who stormed through the memorial service shouting, we hate Abby, Abby is a commie. Um, and that was, that must have been April, May, 1989. So the events of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia that followed just several months later seemed like a whole new language, a whole new opening of possibilities. And I was, I was especially enchanted by, by Václav Havel's language, in some sense very contingently, because Havel was being translated by Paul Wilson, who's an extraordinarily talented translator. And so you know, Havel sounded especially beautiful in English, as, as he does in Czech. And he was talking about, you know, the truth will prevail, which was a way I had never heard the word truth used in, in English before. And then he came to Washington in February 1990 as the first post-communist president of Czechoslovakia and gave a speech before a joint session of uh, the, the American Congress and the American Senate. And he said, consciousness precedes being and not the other way around, as the Marxists claim. Now, I, I think nobody knew what he meant. Um, I certainly didn't know what he meant. And I think the chances that very many people in Congress remember that moment in German ideology where you know, Marx and Engels talk about being preceding consciousness, extremely unlikely. Um, but that was the moment that so many of us fell in love with, with Havel. And one of the American journalists there um, said, wow, if I could talk like that, I would run for God. Um, and that was, I think, the beginning of my being drawn to that intellectual tradition. Does this mean that um, for you it was uh, it was a culture of big, big values, big ideas, big words? Because in the Western world, well, starting from from the French culture of the 1960s, then I think it 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 penetrated America more in 1970s. There was this, of course, fashion for the so-called postmodernism, poststructuralism, constructivism, which basically re relativizes these big words like truth, like consciousness, like being. And um, the, there was this intellectual culture of deconstruction, of looking into detail, uh, which, is, which is not bad in, in, in that sense, which is also a good, I think, intellectual tradition, this micro-history and micro micro attention to details but in a way it 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 maybe closed the eyes to the big things and to to these words like like truth is that something that seduced you this coming back to maybe something absolute not not absolute but but something big uh, some meta narratives as this postmodernist was <laughs> saying that meta narratives are gone but it seems that those events in 1989 brought these meta-narratives back. Absolutely. That's what it was for me. And I should say, at that moment, 
you know, I hadn't, I would later, you know, in the, later in the 1990s, and as I went through graduate school, I would go through stages of being intensely fascinated by Derrida and post-structuralism, you know, and the whole structuralist tradition, moving from Saussure through Foucault. But at the time, my attraction to the belief that there was such a thing as the ontological reality of truth was... And it was less sophisticated in the sense that I hadn't yet read any of the French theory. I hadn't yet read any theory at all, really. I just had an intuitive sense that I was growing up in suburban America of the 1980s, and it seemed so existentially thin. Everything seemed so art superficial and so pragmatic and, in a way bourgeois in a kind of cynical way and it seemed that nobody believed in great ideals anymore and I really I was a teenager at the time so I suppose you know teenagers often have this feeling I mean now our children are getting to be teenagers so I'm thinking oh no what it's going to be like for me to watch them go through this but there was a sense of rebellion a sense that nobody really believed in anything a sense that our lives should be for something more um, and that that language which was a language and the language that I discovered when I started reading the Czech and Slovak dissidents was a language I had never heard in American politics. And because it was so different, it was in enchanting. Um, there was something very romantic about it. And, and at the time, I really knew nothing about Eastern Europe. I didn't know anything about communism. I didn't know anything about Marxism. I had never read Marx. And the drama of 1989 was not the drama of having followed any kind of history of communism. It was feeling that I had grown up in this world divided by an iron curtain, and there was an evil empire on the other side, and you could never go across it because it, it was locked, and it was shut, and it was cut off. And then so suddenly one day it opened and then it opened and suddenly there seemed to be these intellectual riches on the other side. And so, of course, I wanted to go because that that was extremely seductive. And I think that there were several ways to overcome this Marxist tradition. And they, they actually went into different directions because um, by the 1960s, it was more or less clear both. Uh, in the Western world and behind the Iron Curtain, that Marxism is no longer the you know the, the the theory that produces energy. But while in the Western Europe, uh, this overcoming Marxism was actually went through this deconstruction process, mm -hmm. through the criticism of the meta narratives and etc. And I would say rather to aesthetics, because deconstruction in, is mostly about aesthetics, mm -hmm. intellectual aesthetics. In Eastern Europe, we see this process, which started in uh, from already in in from Budapest in 60, uh, 56, but then of course with Prague Spring in sixty eight, and then with this uh, with uh, with Charter seventy seven, and and then it went through the. Helsinki process and Helsinki groups in Eastern Europe, including Russia and Ukraine. And it was primarily about ethics. And I think it was primarily about ethics. And in Ukraine, for example, it was also a question of identity. So interestingly, when the French intellectuals were thinking how to overcome identity, Ukrainian dissidents were thinking how to bring identity back. And these were two 
versions of um, absolutely different versions of combating Marxist totalitarianisms. Would you agree with that? And it's, that's very interesting how you put it. Now, I'd be interested here, too, to hear from your perspective that the relationship between that, that, that rebuilding of identity, you know, and the relationship to human rights, which is, of course, a very universal language. You know, I mean, people like, like Vasil Stus, who were, were drawing on, you know, both a kind of a, a national tradition of poetry, but also the Helsinki agreements, which for the dissidents everywhere provided this new language that was transcendent of everything else. It was transcendent of politics. Um, it was transcendent of time. It was transcendent of place. You know, in some, the, the magic of the language of human rights was that it was as if transcendent of meta-narratives, and yet it still had this language. I mean, it still had a, a philosophical language with political implications, but could legitimately be claimed to be anti-political or transcendent of the political and its universality. In some sense, the, I, I, I'm curious to hear how it looked from Ukraine, that relationship between the, the nation-building exercise or the reclaiming of national identity together with the universality of the work being done by the Helsinki committees, which were so central to these dissident circles. Yeah, I think for, for that generation of people, and, and uh, they are also living with us, and uh, people like uh, Miroslav Marinovich, with whom I, I, I speak quite quite regularly, uh, and who actually, interestingly enough, people like Johan Sverstuk, who, are, uh, who is unfortunately not with us, but uh, we have a person who is very active right now and who is his pupil, who is his student, who is uh, Alexandra Matvichuk, um, whom you know very well, um, Nobel Prize winner. And uh, for those of you who are listening to this podcast, you can also listen to my conversation with Alexander Matvichuk. So I think this continuity, of course, from between from dissidents to the present day human human rights activists is very very present. And what unites that generation of Helsinki groups, Marinovich or Rudenko or Sverstuk or others, and today's generation is that. Uh, there is n no real cleavage between the questions of identity and the questions of universal uh, human rights. I think this is something that makes Ukrainian reality a little bit different from uh, from the some other realities, both in the West and in the East. Because obviously, in Russia, it's a clear cleavage, and they they said, okay, we we don't care about universal rights, we will stick on our sovereign democracy, so-called, and then that meant actually refinding uh, a new form of cruelty. But at the same time, we see how I think it kind of uh, polarizes the American or the British or even Polish political spectrum. On the one hand, you have conservatives with the idea of identity. On the other hand, you have, liber you have liberals, progressives with the idea of human rights. I don't think that in Ukraine it is valid. I think in Ukraine it's uh, it's a combination between the two. is is the same fight for emancipation, and uh, I I liked how we talked with Tim Snyder on this uh, on this podcast, and uh, he his idea was, and I think he's developing this on on his lay Yale 
lectures as well that look identity can be a part of human rights and that what the Helsinki movement was about that look I'm fighting for my human rights and part of this human rights is my right to to have my language my culture etc and this is this is right but there is another another side of it I think is that not only identity is part of universal human rights but the idea that look in in a way you you can you can be living in a moment of history when you can only protect human rights when you protect your community when there is a community that is able to protect you when there is a community that is able to be on your side and i think this is so actually we cannot fight for individual human rights if we stay only individuals because we will be alone we will be unprotected we will be Uh, destroyed by the authoritarian machine and this is i think one of the dramas of the russian society right now that it has or belarusian for that matter uh, it has lots of brave individuals but they are not strong enough to form a community which will uh, which will defend itself and these individuals against the uh, the repressive state So um I do think that there is lots of lot to think about actually. Yeah. Now that and that actually you know raises the point about statelessness that Hannah Arendt brings up in Origins of Totalitarianism that the lesson of the refugee problem at the end of the first world war when you have all these passportless people is that human rights turns out to be meaningless in the absence of a state to enforce them. Now, there's a difference between a state and a community, but I think still that point that the idea that there are these universal rights of man it turned out not to be very helpful, you know, or to be de facto meaningless, you know, if, if they weren't protected by any kind of larger body. Exactly. And therefore, when I look at the way how we understood the reality, Ukrainian civil society, sometimes exaggerating the role of the civil society and denigrating the role of the state it was also a mistake in the past years of course we should be critical about the state about the problem of bureaucracy problems of corruption how sometimes private interests encroach on the state but if there is no state right now it's an illusion to think that only civil society would win against Russia. It's also an illusion to think that only state would win. So it's a combination of both. And it's very interesting how this combination works. So one of the things I heard for the first time, actually, on your the podcast you did with Natalia Gumenyuk, that must have been this summer. My, I, I can't remember the dates on things anymore. But I think it was the first time I heard somebody make this point was Natalia on your podcast when she said for the first time in Ukrainian history, civil society is seeing the state as an ally, as opposed to a source of obstruction or an enemy. I don't think for the first time, I think there was lots of movement towards this already from 2014, when a lot of people from civil society went to the government, some, some people with success, uh, majority I would say with, with disappointment, but we should understand that transformations never go very quickly and smoothly. You will always have you know, uh, resistance of the system. And by the way, sometimes 
when you look at Georgia right now, Georgia was example of big and, and fast reforms. But now looking at the current authoritarian uh, regime in Georgia, which, you know, puts Saakashvili to prison and actually starves him mm-hmm. to a very, very di- difficult condition and, and maybe w- wanting to kill him in prison, you understand that, well, maybe sometimes the reforms are can be also too fast and when society is unprepared and there is lots of uh, opposition to it and then this opposition brings counter-revolution and uh, and that's it. So I think civil society and state, uh, yeah, uh, they're still in a very difficult uh, communication in Ukraine, difficult relations. So we should never idealize neither of them or, or the the communication between them but uh, but yes i i do think that there is an understanding i hope there is an understanding from both sides that um, that both are, are are both are needed yeah i i, I want to go back and ask you about um since i have someone to think with me now on the air about this this issue the universal and the particular in, in human rights because i'm thinking about two things and two different examples in particular. When the last time I was in Russia was 2016. And it was it was really important to me to go back to Russia before I finished the book I was writing about the Maidan. I felt like I needed to sit in the room and look my Russian colleagues in the eye and really try to understand what was happening. And I had the, the chance to go back. It was already a kind of moment where, you know, Tim wasn't sure it was going to be safe and he was definitely no longer going to Russia. And it wasn't that easy for me to get a visa, but there was a, a framework of a German foundations working on a, a project called Debates on Europe, which is still going on in partnership with you know, various, various cultural organizations in post-Soviet countries. And so there was a, a framework of these largely German-Russian conversations that, that were going to be happening. And I was the only American there. And it was, it was a strange situation because in some sense, there were conversations about Ukraine, but without Ukrainians, because the Ukrainians who had participated in the first few meetings um, largely didn't feel it was safe to go to Russia, which was true. Um, and so it was a conversation about Ukrainians without Ukrainians, largely with Germans and Russians. But one of the things on the table was, was who is a real European? And my perspective as an American was that there was a kind of understanding that, of course, Germans as you know the strongest, the strongest power in the European Union, you know, their status of Europeans was irrefutable. The polls have now, you know, over the past 20 years been accepted, if occasionally as second-class citizens. Um, Ukraine is now is on the border after the Maidan, and there's a desire for Ukrainians to be aspiring Europeans. Is are Rush, Do Russians have any chance to be Europeans? Is that even on the table? And what I was, I was, I think, the only non-European in the room, someone who's not only not European, but doesn't even have a marginal claim to be European you know, all the way across the ocean. But the disturbing thing to me was that there, I felt like there was a subtext. And the subtext was, if you are European, then you have some kind of divinely entitled, you know, right to live under a reign of the rule of law and human rights. And if you're not, 
well, we just throw up your arms because we all know there's never been human rights respected in Russia. We, we all know that throughout all sorts of places in Africa and Asia, there's not even a pretense of respecting human rights. So what can you do? But if you're European, then somehow you have more of a claim on this. And I thought, well, that doesn't actually make sense because the whole point about human rights is that they are meant to be universal. You know, so you either believe in human rights or you don't believe in human rights, but believing in human rights only under certain particular circumstances, it does not strike me as a morally sustainable position and is, is oxymoronic and at odds with the very idea of human rights. And then my, I, I thought about this again, having forgotten about it for a while when I found myself during this war. I mean, one of the things I've been doing, which I, I generally love to do, is, is doing some promotion of Ukrainian literature. And I, I love literature and I love promoting good literature and I love writing about other people's books. Writers love writing about other writers. It's a thing we all do. Um, and one of the conversations I found myself being wearied of being dragged into was that, you know, look at what we, I was writing an, an afterword for, you know, Volodya Rafayenko's novel, um, Dogota Tnye, uh, that, that if there is great literature, if there is great culture, you know, if there is you know, sublime poetry, you know, then that, then, then that gives a country a right not to be annihilated. And I thought, okay, that's a trap. You know, there's, there is great literature, but that's not, that, that's not what should make us refuse to accept a world in which kindergartens are bombed and maternity hospitals are bombed and people are, are being tortured in, in torture chambers under occupation. Like the right, you know, the right not to be slaughtered, the right not to be tortured is prior to literature. It cannot be contingent upon possessing a great literature. It can't be contingent upon your kinship to Nobel Prize winning poets. It has to be a priori, always, everywhere, for everyone. We have to start there. And I, I worry at moments that that gets lost. But maybe I'm being too neurotic, so you should tell me what you think. I, I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, there is there can be sometimes you see the argument in the West that look, uh, there is a evil regime, Putin's regime, but there is a great Russian culture, and I have uh, two two responses to it. Uh, first, uh, we should be looking also very critically at Russian culture as well. It's not only about beautiful poems and and good novels. We should. We should analyze it critically, as as in in the way as we analyze the European literatures right now. We can, you know, we can appreciate Kipling, uh, but at the same time understand that there is a there is a big colonial narrative behind him. Or one of my favorite novels uh, in European literature is Salambo by Flaubert. I think it's a masterpiece, but this aesthetic masterpiece is is made made as a masterpiece precisely because all these orientalist topics and all this yeah. objectivizing look at the east as a material for the for the yeah. aesthetic object. And um, if we look at the Russian literature, we will find a lot of lot of things that will disturb us. And I, I wrote about this several on several occasions. I think we we definitely can see uh, some very chauvinistic narratives in Pushkin, for example, about Polish uprising in uh, 1830s. We can see very very much imperialist discourse 
of Russian classics like Pushkin and Lermontov about Caucasus and about Ukraine, by the way. And when we look at people like Dostoevsky, we clearly see this Russian uh, messianism and imperialism and this kind of pretension that Russia is greater than all other nations. What disturbs me in Tolstoy uh, in, in his War in Peace is a clear theology of war, which I, which I mm. definitely despise right mm. now. And which also has origins in other cultures, in in uh, in Joseph de Maistre or in Proudhon, in French cultures as well. So it, it's not only about, I mean, Russian culture, but but we should look at it with a with a more sober eye, I think, and and see uh, some of the sources of the of what's happening now in, in even in Russian classics. It, it doesn't mean that Russian classics are responsible for that, but. Uh, I'm just saying that to say that, look, we cannot really oppose it. We cannot really say that uh, um, Ru Russian culture is on the angelic side and uh, Putin is on demonic side. They're <laughs> intervened in a, in, a, in, a, in a deeper way. But your question about human rights is, is majorly a question uh, also whether Russia will be able to become a, a true democratic state one day, right? We should also understand that human rights were not in Europe always, but they actually appeared only after the Second World War. I think they appeared rather in the 1960s, 1970s, so they're also very young. I mean, nobody was really talking about yeah. human rights uh, in the 19th century. People were rather talking about the rights of communities, of uh, economic communities or of national communities. So in this sense, I mean, uh, Russia is probably late. So Ru Russia is now on this, on the, on the, on the, on on the page of development, which reminds me uh, about European um, social Darwinism in the late 19th century, when the ideology was the same. It's like people are animals who want to kill each other. Life is the struggle for survival. Politics is about collective animals killing each other. And therefore, we should be prepared for wars and expansions, etc. So maybe in 100 years, Russia will be different. But it's, it, it doesn't mean that it will be different in two, three, five years. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. our horizon should be much shorter. Tell me yes. about I, I would like I would like to ask you because uh, of course the the ethical topics are very very important right now. Uh, what do you think about evil? Uh, can we can we analyze this? Can we come back to this? Because again, uh, in the in the Western world, I think there was a lot of relativization of evil after the Second World War, and maybe rightly so. We have the concept of banality of evil of Hannah Arendt, of course. Mm. But at the same time, we had people like Lesha Kolakowski, who is actually bringing us back to a very old ontological idea of evil, of devil, and in a good sense, I think, because he, he makes us much more sober about this. Uh, because if you if you accept, uh, accept the existence of evil, that, uh, that actually... Uh, makes you much more uh, suspect about the idea that you can talk with evil, you can negotiate with evil, you can transform evil. 
because this was one of the ideas of the European governments in the past decades. Like you can, okay, Putin is probably bad, but you can talk to him, you can engage with him, you can build pipelines with him. And this relativization actually produced this war. What do you think? I, that's very much how I've been feeling as well. And I mean, I would say not especially since this war started, but really I would say especially watching, it's a topic I've been obsessed with, particularly I think since August 2020, watching what was happening in Belarus. Um, I become more and more preoccupied with this question of evil, the kind of phenomenology of evil. You know, the moment when Lukashenko hijacked that Ryanair flight and took Roman Protasevich captive and then tortured this false confession out of him, Stalinist style. And then you you might recall this, it was, it must, was it summer of 2021, maybe spring of 2021, um, on, on Belarusian TV, there was an hour and a half long slick television studio and with Protasevich gave this elaborate self-flagellating confession um, that was clearly having clearly had been tortured out of him and uh, Marat Markov who was the television personality who was asking the questions was doing this with a kind of twinkle in his eye and, and you you listen to this and you watch this and you knew that Markov knew exactly what he was doing and I felt like I was looking at the devil. I mean, I felt like I was watching this and thinking, wow, this is what evil looks like. You know, I mean, evil perhaps in a postmodern form, because unlike, you know, I went back and read Bukharin's confession and looked at Vyshinsky and looked at these material from the Stalinist era that I hadn't reread in many years, the language was very similar. But the thing that was different was that now everybody, the curtain had been pulled. I mean, everybody knew the circumstances under which this confession was extracted. You know, everybody knew it wasn't real. Markov, unlike Vyshinsky, did not believe, but he took a kind of malicious, sadistic delight, you know, in, in this kind of performance. And, and, my, and I thought, okay, so there's something postmodern about it. We all know it's not real. The curtain has been pulled. But that doesn't make the evil any less evil. We're still looking at something like the ontological reality of, of evil. Um, and that, that's kind of where my head was at. And then since this war started, I've been... I, I've been continually returning to that because I follow these debates about Russian imperialism, about Russian colonialism, about Tolstoy, about Pushkin, about Dostoevsky, about have we been too dazzled by the Russian ballet. And I think, okay, that can take us so far. But there's still a kind of sadistic cruelty that is taking place in these places where the Russians have occupied. And you have these 20-year-old soldiers torturing with electric shock, you know, women who, who could be their mothers and grandmothers, you know, like civilians, they're raping children, you know, they're, they're doing things that, that can't be explained in any kind of realpolitik way. And I don't think an understanding of imperial condescension is, takes us far enough to get at that kind of cruelty. I think there is something 
there is some kind of essence of evil that we haven't come to terms with yet. And I have found myself going back, you know, going back to philosophy, go, going back to, to Jaspers and the Grenzsituation and going back to Arendt and trying to, going back to Kowalkowski and what Kowalkowski writes about, why do we need Kant? Well, we need Kant because there has to be some a priori, you know, non-contingent distinction between good and evil. We need that as a starting place. You know, just like in order to have human rights, you actually need, you know, an abstract universal because anytime you try to make a concrete empirical, it becomes contingent. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. And um, um, just uh, you mentioned Vyshinsky for, for our listeners who, who don't know, Vyshinsky is one of the key ideologues of the Stalinist uh, repressions and Stalinist purges. I think he was uh, prosecutor general of the Soviet Union. And I was also surprised when I was reading his books because he uh, was also a theoretician of law. And uh, he, he had several books written about law in the Soviet Union. And I was I was puzzled with how he tries to rationalize all what is happening. So not only these, these are killings, murder, murders, uh, people sent to camps, to gulags by millions, but there were people who tried to rationalize it, who tried to make a theory out of that. And his theory was that in the Soviet Union, truth, analytical truth, of the Western world doesn't hold. It's what 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 is valid is dialectical truth, what he called dialectical truth, and dialectical truth actually meant that you can judge a person without any evidence, without any empirical evidence, just because uh, while he belongs or she belongs to peasants, Ukrainian peasants, that means that by default he or she is guilty because they belong to a, to a class which is a guilty. So this rationalization of horror was also kind of this element of this. And when I think about this cruelty, it certainly goes beyond imperialism. It certainly goes beyond these, these things. I think it has actually it has actually two aspects. The first aspect is is what has been described many times by the classics of political philosophy, uh, like Montesquieu when he describes tyranny, as you remember, he clearly says the tyranny is when, why republics are based upon virtue and uh, love of the republic. The tyrannies are based upon fear. And maybe this sounds banal, but if you think about this, if tyrannies are, are based upon fear, that means that the, the, the only goal of the tyrant is to produce fear. And how you produce fear, you produce it by extreme violence. That's the only, that's the only two... But another thing, I think there is a, something deeper, and I think it's it's rather um, in 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 a certain way how Russian society is functioning. Not only Russia, and how, for example, uh, the society in Syria around Bashar al-Assad. We recently had a con wonderful conversation with Jean-Pierre Filiou, who is an expert on on Syrian Middle East, and he provided lots of parallels how this culture of cruelty is also present there. And I think one of the things is that there is a certain lack in, in, in the culture itself, there is a certain lack of pleasure. There is a certain lack, lack of ability to, uh, to, of joy, ability to enjoy your life. And therefore, the only pleasure you have is actually the suffering of others. So you feel 
so bad that you need to punish other people who feel good. And this is what what we understood during this invasion, uh, that Russian soldiers who came here, in many aspects they were much poorer than Ukrainian peasants or Ukrainian uh, city men, and they were actually jealous uh, about them, and they enjoyed the fact that they can make them suffer. So this kind of a sadomasochistic element that you suffer yourself, and in order to you know make your suffering bearable, you make others suffer more than you. And I think that this is one of the, uh, sorry, just a final word, one of the elements of this Putinist regime that it is actually not playing a positive-sum game, not even playing the zero-sum game, it's playing a negative-sum game, meaning that it's a game in which you will suffer, but your goal is to make the other suffer more than you. And unless we understand it, we will not understand this war. That was something that, that Peter Pomerantsev was talking about also in a podcast with you that I found, yeah, yeah. I, I continually find myself returning to that, that kind of, the theme of, of humiliation, the theme of that kind of sadomasochistic trope in, in Russian culture, the, the trope of domestic violence. I mean, it was, it was the, the Belarusian feminist who got me thinking about domestic violence you know, because they they found that a language they had developed to articulate the problem of domestic violence became a language that the whole country, men and women alike, could use to articulate how they were being treated by the dictatorship. And I started to see that you know, domestic violence was a metaphor, but it was more than a metaphor. You know, and the kind of somehow society-wide domestic violence that has been playing out in Russia and now in what Russia is enacting on Ukraine, you know, has made me think a lot about that kind of sadomasochistic trope and where it's coming from. I mean, I was also, oh, I, I want to talk about, about Stasha Sheyev's book, which I've been also kind of obsessed with. Um, I, I, you know, so his book for your listeners who may not have, have read it, his is set in Izolatsia in Donetsk, where he was held captive before the full-scale invasion happened. You know, so it, between 2017 and 2019, and he was a young writer, journalist, who was writing from the Donetsk People's Republic um, under a pseudonym. He was caught in 2017. He spent two and a half years being held captive you know, by these Kremlin-supported separatists you know, in, in Izolatsia, kind of in this basement, and gruesomely tortured, um, largely by these electric shocks, which he writes about with just uncanny clarity. Um, but he was also a, a philosophy student. He studied philosophy and theology before this happened. You know, and so his book is also inflected with these questions of, is there, is there any meaning? I mean, is this just a kind of Camus-like absurdist nihilism? Is this for nothing? I mean, at the end, he's saying like these guys, he's a young man. He's, he's still a young man. He was maybe 26 when he was captured. He's now in his early 30s. It, he's... And he's being tortured by other young men who he says, you know, before this all happened, probably we were waiting in line at the same bakery. 
You know, we likely passed one another on the streets. When they're not in a basement torturing people, when they take their balaclavas off, they're probably still standing in line in those bakeries. And perhaps after this is over, we'll be standing in line at the same bakery again. So what has turned them into, what, what has turned them into people who enact this kind of cruelty on other people? What is this for? You know, what does it mean? Can any meaning be teased out of it? Under what circumstances do people descend into these roles? Clearly, they're still people. I mean, they're not so crazed that they have to be locked up or are not otherwise functional. They leave the basement where they've been torturing people for hours and presumably go on to do other normal things in their lives. So how do you get your mind around that? You know, and I when I was reading his book, I kept thinking of that that moment when you know Ivan Karamazov says, like, okay, in that case, I return my ticket. If this is it, I don't want in this world. Yeah, I think uh, Stanislav Asseyev's book is one of the <clears throat> one of the most. Uh, I I can even I can't even find the word. One of the most acute, one of the most true, and and very difficult to read, but must read books about about what's happening in Ukraine. I think it's translated in many languages. Stanislav Asiev. Um in Ukrainian it's called Svitli Shlach because it was uh, it was uh, I think the street which was called in this way, but I don't know how it's called in English, in English translation. In in English it's the torture camp on Paradise Street. Yeah, yeah, Paradise Street. But I think it is also a testimony that gulags are back and uh, they do not disappear. That uh, concentration camps are back, and uh, yeah, we we have to we have to live in this reality. Uh, one of the questions that I was stuck, and I, I hear that many people actually uh, were also very much surprised with these questions when people were asking, "How is it possible in twenty first century?" And uh, you ask yourself. Who told us that 21st century will be better than 20th century? <laughs> uh, and uh, there was a beautiful phrase by uh, First Lady Olena Zelenska, who spoke uh, um, in September on uh, on Yes Forum, and she said uh, the same phrase. And then she said, "Why we believed in the calendar? <laughs> what what made us believe in the calendar? I think it it, it was very very." Ex- exactly said maybe my last question for today marcy uh we are talking already for 45 minutes but i have the impression we only started so maybe it will also we be have a only ch- started yeah <laughs> it will be a chance to ag- again come back it's it's a, it's a great pleasure to talk to you uh you mentioned um you mentioned czech and slovak writers like havel uh, we didn't talk about uh, patochka this time but when you're thinking about Ukrainian authors, you already mentioned uh, Stus and Stanislav Asseyev. Maybe there are some other authors that you would advise to read uh, to, let's say, English-speaking public. Oh, yeah. Well, I've I've been writing, I mean, recently about, uh, you know, Volodymyr Rafayenko's work, which I think I... When I, when I first met him through my friend Tanya Zhurzhenko several years ago, I... I translated a tiny, a, a fragment of the, the novel De Gota Dunier, which has now been translated the whole book by Sivalon Forrester as The Length of Days. There's a very, there was a kind of short story within that that had been published separately um, in the Ukrainian press. 
um, written written in Russian in the Ukrainian press um, um, called Siem Ukropov, uh, Seven Dillweeds. It's very, very tight. It's tight, it's short, you know, there's almost something Chekhovian about it, but it so captures, again, a kind of absurdist nihilism of the beginnings of the war in the Donbass. You know, and I felt like, you know, that, that book, and I would say Voro Shilovgrad, you know, which is more of a kind of, you know, epic kind of novel that Serhii Zhadan wrote that's brilliantly translated into, into English um, by um, Isaac Stacker-Wheeler and Riley Costigan-Humes, or its extraordinary young translation team. It gives such a good feeling for the Donbass. I mean, it, it so humanizes it without any kind of idealization or romance. Um, with the, I mean, Serhi writes about, about the Donbass with this, a deep love that is totally devoid of sentimentality. And so I feel like for, for people in, uh, in America, in other places to understand this faraway place that you know, all too foreigner, few foreigners have been to that you know, was the site of what you know, I think is the beginning of the Third World War, I, I don't think there's anything that could do it better than that kind of literature. Um, I mean, I wish that, you know, I, I wish we were talking about this in more cheerful circumstances and we could just talk about great literature is great literature. But under the circumstances when the war started in 2014, I was continually haunted by Chamberlain's phrase of, you know, a quarrel in a faraway country between people about whom we know nothing. And I thought, my God, the Donbass is going to be that quarrel in a faraway country between people, you know, about whom we know nothing. You know, and there is this this literature that is great literature on any scale that can help us understand what's happening there. You know, and so I have been spending some time, you know, trying to kind of you know, promote that to the extent I, I can. I'm now about to write about some wartime diaries um, and Andrei Korkov's work. Um, again, I wish this was all happening under, you know, under more cheerful circumstances. And I, I look, I think, I mean, I mean, I've had this conversation now with Volodya Rafael many times, like, how do we, I keep coming back to, there are all these brilliant minds. How do we understand this problem of evil? Why? Why? Why are they, you know, why are people doing this to other human beings? You know, how can we, we can describe it, we can see it. You know, we have authors who can set this dialogue, but there's some there's you know there there's some darkness at the heart of human existence that i feel like it's not enough we haven't understood well enough like why are why are people going along with this how is it possible yeah i after i read stasha Seyev's book about isolatia which would be great literature under any circumstances like i was you know when i read his first book in um his uh, which is a collection of his essays written before he was captured and it's wonderful to discover a talented young author, you know, and I, if and I thought this would be a talented young author who I would have been a pleasure to discover under other circumstances, you know, and now, now we're looking, now now we're we're looking at this. How can we, how can we grasp this problem of evil, 
And I, after I, so after I read the book about the torture camp, um, I then read a colleague sent to me Andre Oleg's book, The Question. And uh, Andre Oleg was uh, a French, uh, French communist on the Algerian side. In the French-Algerian War, he was captured by the French paratroopers and also gruesomely tortured, also with electric shocks, you know, in the 1950s. And he wrote a very tight account of that um, in real time. And I read that and I thought, my God, there are scenes of that that are eerily similar to scenes that Stanislav Vaseyev is describing. You know, how has there been no progress? This is getting back to your point that you've made many times about technological progress has not brought moral progress. And Elena Zelenskaya's point that we have, like we believed in the calendar. How is that we have these we have these brilliant descriptions. How is that we've been looking at it? How have we not made further progress? How has, you know, if literature has helped us understand there's a step further we need to go where it hasn't yet taken us. And I feel like I'm, I've been banging my head against the wall. There must be something. There must be some way. There must be some way we can penetrate. There must be some way we can make it stop. Yeah. And, um, Literature during hard times, during dark times, I think it's, it, it highlights it in a very, very sober way. And uh, I can say that despite all these hardships, the Ukrainian literature, the Ukrainian culture is really the time of, of a very deep reflection and production. We have lots of very interesting and very strong poets, both women and men, uh, prosa writers, essayists. So I do hope that, you know, the the previous history of Ukraine, as we know, was very, very difficult, but in in many aspects it was silenced. It was internally silenced and it was externally silenced. I do hope that we are not uh, in that moment anymore. And I just recently wrote an essay uh, which is called Beyond, Beyond Silence or Beyond Being Muted. So I do hope that at least this uh, this ability to speak, which is also ability to live. If you if you f- if you lose your ability to talk and to speak and to write, in some aspect you you just going closer to death. And I hope that this moment is not the moment uh, of Ukrainian culture right now. On the on on the other side, um, it, it it is rather the moment when we regain our capacity to speak. Thank you, yeah, Marcy. I, yeah. but if, if I could just add one little thing, because I don't want to add on, end on such a dire note. It is true that you know, since this war started, I've been reading Iakiva's work. I've, I've been reading Helena Krug's work. I've been, I, I've, it, it has been extraordinary to me to watch not just how Ukrainians have fought, you know, but how they have been thinking, um, how they have been writing, um, beyond anything that anybody could have expected. I mean, as you know, like the world fought, Kiev would fall in three days, you know, and not only did Kiev not fall in three days, but people are continuing to produce great literature. And the, the, 
the philosophical idea I've come back to there, and I, I posted this on Facebook for the occasion of the macabre one-year anniversary, is that moment in the human condition where Hannah Arendt talks about natality as the miracle that saves the world. Um, and she says that the new always happens against the overwhelming odds of statistical laws and their probabilities. The new therefore always appears in the guise of a miracle. The fact that man is capable of action means that the unexpected can be expected from him, that he is able to perform what is infinitely improbable. And I've been watching Ukraine perform what is infinitely improbable, and I am, I am hanging on to that as the miracle that saves the world. Yeah, exactly. So, so do we. Thank you so much, Marcy. Thank you for this conversation. Oh, thank you, Volodya. It's always lovely to talk to you. This was a podcast series, Thinking in Dark Times, by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. The goal of this series is to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness. Support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian trips to the frontline areas at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.